Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. That video just gives away all of my sermon titles for the next four weeks, so uh, you know exactly what's happening. Yeah, we're starting a new series. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, I, you look like a crowd that knows your 80s rap trivia, <laughs> but there's some people in here who were not born in the 80s, so let me just bring them up to speed. There was a rap group in the 1980s called N.W.A., and relatively recently, there was a movie that came out about them, and that movie was entitled Straight Outta Compton. And ever since then, there have been an insane amount of memes, internet memes, that have come up since then surrounding Straight Outta Compton, like Straight Outta PetSmart or Straight Outta Gas. You can, you can invent these, you can just type these out on the internet, it'll make you one. Or if you're a little patriotic, straight out of England, good old George Washington, I guess, out of England. And so I had to participate in that whole thing a little bit, and so we get to straight out of context. And this is a series that is all about passages in the Bible that are misunderstood. And they're not misunderstood because they're hard. They're not misunderstood because they use really big words. They're not misunderstood because they're like deep theological thoughts that uh, are bantered about over uh, the eons. It's not that. It's just that these are passages that are misunderstood because, you know, like at first glance, when you first read them, you're like, oh, I easily know what that means. But then once you study it for a little bit, you realize it means completely different, sometimes even opposite of what you thought. They were taken out of context. And so that really is the point of this series. I have preached this four times before. That's why this is straight out of context, five. And, and I, can, I can preach this one for another 10 years as I read my Bible and as I read articles and as I read Christian articles. I often run across passages in the Bibles that are just taken out of context. Oftentimes, it's um, unoffensively in the sense that people aren't trying to do that. They do it accidentally. It's unintended. But I'll write that passage down, and I have a folder full of passages that we could do. So for the next 10 years, <laughs> we won't repeat one because the Bible is often taken out of context. And that is the point of this series that God expects to be understood. And Christians need to build the, build the muscles of learning to understand what God says in the Bible. They need to develop this skill to understand what God says. Oftentimes we say, man, I really wish God would just tell us something. Tell us this. Tell us his will in this area. Well, usually he does. (laughs) It's just right here. And God expects to be understood. He's communicated. He has spoken. And so now he expects to be understood. But it does take work. And so that's the purpose of the series is to begin to develop the skill set of understanding God's word in context. And there are some enormous dangers that come when Christians misunderstand the Bible. And so I brought a few of them just so you understand how important this is. Paul tells Pastor Timothy, so the the context here is, is a pastor that is receiving this from an apostle. And the apostle says to the pastor, watch your life and doctrine closely. Doctrine just means what you believe about the Bible. So it says, watch your life and what you believe about the Bible closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, the good, good news of this is when a pastor understands the Bible accurately and he communicates it, not only is that saving for himself because he knows the gospel, that can bring salvation to those people who hear it because they know the real gospel too and they can be saved. But the dangerous side of this is when someone, or a pastor particularly, misunderstands the Bible. Not only could he not be saved, but also those who come to hear him could also not be saved too because they don't hear or know the right thing. That's a dangerous. Titus, or, um, this is Paul talking to Titus here in Titus 1. It says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. There's that word again, which you believe about the Bible. And refute those who oppose it. Now, this is something that I do. This is one of my responsibilities. But I also want to equip you to do this too. This isn't something that only a pastor should do. This is something that all Christians should develop the skill to do, 
to be able to understand things about the Bible. And so that then when waves and winds of different ideas come, the Christians can easily say, no, (laughs) that's not in the Bible, or yes, that's obviously in the Bible. And it's dangerous when someone misunderstands God's word that they can allow in things who are actually opposing God's word. So that's dangerous. Something is at risk here. Ultimately, Paul says in 2 Timothy, he says this, do your best to present yourself to God as as one approved a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. And yeah, it, it is work. It, 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 it does take work to understand the Bible in context. But when we're standing before God, don't you want to be approved? Like I, th- I don't think there's a person in this room today who says, you know, I really want to be disapproved of by God when I get in front of him. You wouldn't be sitting here today if that was your perspective. And so notice one of the aspects of standing in front of God approved is one who understands what he says. And so this is a a skill set that Christians need to develop for themselves, understanding God's word. Because if we misunderstand it, some things could happen, maybe even unintentionally. That Christians can, could, one of the dangers is that a Christian could believe that life operates differently than it really does. And sometimes that's what frustrates people a lot about the Bible. Like they think that, 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 that life is supposed to operate like this. And then they grow frustrated with the Bible when it doesn't operate like this. And the, and the Bible never said that it was going to operate like this. They just thought the Bible said that. And so now they're frustrated with the Bible when the Bible never even said that because they took it out of context. So one thing that can happen when we misunderstand God is that we can believe that life operates differently than it really does. Another thing that can happen is that we can believe things about God that aren't even true. And that sometimes gross frustration in people with God because God doesn't operate the way that they thought he should when he never said he was going to operate like that at all. We just took it out of context. And ultimately, one of the dangers is is that we could convince other people, even unintentionally, of false ideas. We could convince other people of false ideas. We just believe it so wholeheartedly that we're going to tell other people about it. But if it's wrong, we're leading other people in that wrong way. And so this is a skill set that a Christian needs to develop. And so every year we spend time learning how to do this together. And if you want to understand the Bible in context, there are three things that you'll need to do to understand the Bible accurately. And when I say the Bible, I mean any particular word, passage, phrase that someone brings up. There are three things that you can do to understand it accurately. And the first one is this. Read the whole book. When I say the whole book, you've turned to First Peter. If there's a little passage in there that someone points out to you or, uh, or a phrase that, that someone is using and you're not sure exactly what it means, read the entire book. Now, I know that's crazy. <laughs> it might seem crazy. It's just one little passage. <laughs> it, it does take work. And I get it. It's easier sometimes to take something out of context. It's easier just to ask me <laughs> than it is to read the entire book. But at least you need to read a paragraph before the phrase and maybe a paragraph after. Yet You have to understand that, that there's more to this thing than just the one sentence or one you wouldn't open up a dr seuss cat in the hat and just say well this is the way life operates after the first two pages because by the end of the book you realize okay this is not about this is like fantasy land this is nothing about life now this is about something else completely but it's not about life now and so it's important to do is that you would read the entire book and sometimes even you might have to cross-reference that topic with other places in the bible so that you get a clear picture of what god understands but yes That's why uh, Paul uses the word be a workman, because that does take a little bit of work to do that. Instead of just assume that a a half a sentence means something, that you would read the entire book to know who the players are and what's going on in that culture, which leads me to the second thing that you would do. There are three things that a Christian would do to understand something in context. First is read the entire thing. And if you can't even do that, just read some sentences before and after it. 
The second thing that a Christian would do is that you'd ask, what does this mean to them? What, what did this mean to them? The number one reason why passages are taken out of Scripture is the assumption that the Bible was written to us. Now, the Bible was written for us. The Bible was written for our benefit. The Bible was written for our edification so that we'd know how God operates, so that we'd know the way to live, how to correct our lives, how to live a way of righteousness. It was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. We have to realize that when this was penned, it was penned by an author to a group of people, people who went to work, people who had families, people who lived in a society, people who had certain religious uh, cultures that were occurring. Think of the time span that's in God's Word. Think of this. Like from 80, 80 maybe, or 90, all the way back to 1500 B.C.? That's a wide time range. And think of all of the different cultures and all of the different perspectives of the people. And so it's first important to ask, so what did the author intend the recipients of this message to to get? What did the author want them to know? What did God want them to do with the information that they know? We're never going to understand what it means for us until we answer the question, what did it mean for them? So that's the second question. What was the intended message to the people who received it first? What did God want them to know and then to do? And the third thing then that you would say, okay, so what does this mean for me? Is there something that like, is, is there some truth that transcends time? Is there some truth here that transcends the culture? Is there some truth here that that goes beyond these people and this time to the rest of the people on planet Earth? Is this something universal? Is there some universal truth that could be applied for all people of all of time? This is the question that we just brought up on Wednesday night when we are as we were studying Exodus, and we're going through the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and we asked this just this last Wednesday: How do you know? How do you know what law? to apply today, and which ones aren't for us today. I mean, some of the laws we apply today, you know, we know uh, we should honor our father and mother, we know we shouldn't murder, we, we know we shouldn't commit adultery, but then there are other ones that we don't obey because we eat shrimp, and I like shrimp. And so how do you know which Old Testament Mosaic law to apply today and not? Now, if you want to know the answer to that question specifically, come on Wednesday nights. But the universal question throughout Scripture is, whatever you're reading, once you find out what, it, what did the author intend the recipients to, to get from this, then the question is, is, okay, is there anything there that applies to all of people of all of time? Is there something there that I can know about God? Is there something that I can do as a follower of Jesus Christ in this passage? And once you follow that, you'll be hard-pressed to get something out of context when you just follow these three simple little steps. And so we're going to do that today with the first question. Do Jesus' wounds in his body when when he was crucified on the cross, do his wounds heal us physically? You've turned in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Now, it would be pretty easy to just read that last phrase, not even an entire sentence, not even uh, half of a sentence, but just the little ending of a sentence, for by his wounds you were healed. And you could easily, quickly come to the assumption, well, obviously that means that because of Jesus' death, we can be healed physically as we are saved by Christ. Now, this might sound familiar to you because this is something also that is spoken of in the Old Testament as well. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says this, but he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. 
And so both of these men, both Isaiah and Peter, are both looking to the same event. Isaiah is before it. He's the prophet, and he's looking forward to the time that a Messiah would come, a perfect Messiah, and he would be brutally beaten, that he would be placed on a cross and his blood would be poured out, and that would, that would be him taking a punishment that he didn't deserve because he would be perfect, but he would be taking the punishment that someone else deserved instead. Now, Peter is writing from a different perspective. Peter is writing after it occurs. He is looking back at that same event. And he's closer to the event, really, than Isaiah was. He's looking back when Jesus was beaten. Now, Jesus was perfect. He never sinned one time. And so he did nothing wrong, and yet he's being brutalized. In some versions of, of, uh, in some translations, it might say in your Bible, by his stripes we are healed. And that's just referring to the way that Jesus was beaten, the way that he was tortured before he was placed on the cross. They had this one device, it had a a stick kind of this long, and then coming out of that stick were uh, leather straps, multiple leather straps out of the end. And at the end of those leather straps were pieces of bone or pieces of clay or uh, shards of glass at the end. And so the Roman soldier would take that stick with, the, with the, the sharp implements at the end, and he would take that to the prisoner, and it would wrap around his body. And then as the Roman soldier pulled it back, it would pull stripes off the person's body, bloody stripes as the skin went with it, then there were stripes across the body. And so that's what this is referring to. By his stripes, you are healed. By his wounds, you are healed. And so it's easy to assume that it means that with Jesus' death on the cross, then that any person, any Christian, can be physically healed. But a misunderstanding of these verses has caused an enormous amount of confusion. You've heard of faith healers. Faith healers believe that the apostolic gift of being able to heal people is still alive and active today, and a faith healer believes that they still have that ability to heal people. And the two verses that they use as an aspect to their ministry of healing people is 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. They'll quote that verse and they will also quote Isaiah 53. Now remember, when a person takes the Bible out of context, when they misunderstand what God says, there are, there are repercussions And sometimes the repercussions are that we can believe that life operates differently than it really does. And that could grow frustration with the Bible because life is operating differently than what we thought it said. And these faith healers, man, this is a a perfect example of that. Let me give you an example of what what one faith healer says regarding this passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what he said. He said, but... What came on Jesus was not just the whip stripping the flesh off of his bare back, but your sicknesses and diseases. Each time he was whipped, every form of sickness and disease, including arthritis, cancer, diabetes, bird flu, and dengue fever, came upon him. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Today, healing is our right because Jesus has paid the price for your healing. So if the devil says, you cannot be healed, just declare Jesus has paid for my healing. Disease has no right to be in my body. I am healed in Jesus' name. And the faith healer goes on to say, every curse of sickness that was supposed to fall on you fell on Jesus instead. He bore every one of those stripes so that you can walk in divine health all the days of your life. The price has been paid so that you can rise up and get out of your bed of affliction. Now, the problem with that is life doesn't work like that, does it? 
Now, we wish, I wish, that it did. We all know people close to us who have medical diagnosis that have an ending date that's sooner than we hope. Other people have a diagnosis with no end date at all, and there's no hope at all. And so I wish that this was true. We all wish that this was true. And yet, that's not the way that life operates. And so you could see how even this one short little phrase in one verse could cause so much confusion and, and could turn people to, to believe that life operates differently than it really does. Now, remember a couple of other things that can occur when we believe or misunderstand what God says. We can believe things about God that aren't true. Or we could, even accidentally or unintentionally, we could convince other people of things that are inaccurate about God and the Bible. And that is true about this passage for sure. Let me share with you what another charismatic faith healer said about this verse. Some years ago, I was awakened at 1.30 a.m. with severe symptoms in my heart and chest. I knew something about such symptoms because I had been bed fast and given up to die with a heart condition as a teenager. The devil said to my mind, you're going to die. This is one time you're not going to get your healing. I pulled the covers over my head and began to laugh. I didn't feel like laughing, but I laughed anyway for about 10 minutes, and finally the devil asked me what I was laughing about. I'm laughing at you, I said. You said I wasn't going to get my healing. Ha <laughs> ha, Mr. Devil. I don't expect to get my healing. Jesus already got it for me. Now, in case you can't read, I'll quote 1 Peter 2.24 for you. And I did. And after quoting the last phrase, by whose stripes you were healed, I said, now, if we were, I was. So I don't have to get it. Jesus already got it. And because Jesus got it for me, I accept it and claim it and have it. Now you just gather up your little symptoms and get out of here, Mr. Devil. Now see, the problem here, I wish that life operated like that. The problem here is, is that this is believing things about God that are not even true that these, this passage doesn't even teach. And so the question for today is, do Jesus' wounds heal us physically like these faith healers want us to believe? We're going to follow this outline, okay? We're just going to follow this outline. This is what we're going to do. So step one, we're going to read the whole book. So who wants to stand up and read all of First Peter for us right now? No t- oh, we have one taker even. Look at that. Man. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. I've already done that for you, so bonus for you. So that means that I need to tell you at least a little bit about what the context is, and then I'll show you. We're gonna, we are going to look at some passages before this. Okay? But the, the context here is submission. Submission to the government, submission to your employer, submission in your family, submission in your marriage. That's the context. Submission. And this passage of 1 Peter is giving reasons why a Christian would be submissive, okay? So that's the context. So let's pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 2. We're only going back a few sentences, okay? This just tells us how, how little really context you need to get an accurate understanding of a passage like this. Go back to verse 13 of 1 Peter 2. And it says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondslaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So this is about submission, and this first part is obviously submission to the government, the the human authorities that, that exist. And the reason that Christians would be submissive to the human authorities is verse 15. For such 
is the will of God. It's God's will that a Christian would be submissive to the governing authorities. Now remember, we want to say, okay, so what, is it, what was the intended message for the people who were receiving this for the very first time? So during Israel's oppression by Rome, Rome is the oppressor, and Israel is living under them as a government. And some of the Jews were called zealots because these zealots did not want to submit. They did not obey. As a matter of fact, some of these zealots went out under the cloak of darkness and would murder Roman soldiers in the dark, in stealth. They were the zealots. And so God is saying, no, 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 it's God's will that you would be submissive to the Roman government. Now, sometimes being submissive is beneficial to us. For instance, when you stop at a red light, it's beneficial for you. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you need to stop at a red light anywhere. So teenagers, you can take that for what it's worth when you're learning to drive. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you need to stop at a red light. But it is beneficial, like you don't die. Okay? There's a benefit there. When you follow the government's rules, it's a benefit. I don't die. I wait for the other traffic to go by, and then it's my turn. So following or submitting to the government is sometimes beneficial and sometimes not so much. There is nothing beneficial about the DMV. Nothing. (laughs) There is nothing beneficial about jury duty. Now, I have no problem with trial by jury. It's a wonderful thing, a part of our American culture. But the jury duty process, there's nothing good. There's nothing good about parking tickets. Did you know that you can get a parking ticket for backing in backwards to a parking space? And I know that because I did. We were on vacation, pull into a parking spot, back into it, and we go do our tourist things on vacation. We come back, and there's a ticket for 50 bucks on our window. This is the dumbest thing. Back into the, that's what it says, backing in. This is the dumbest thing ever. I walk up and down the street waving this thing around, looking for a sign that says something like this. And sure enough, there's a sign at the beginning of the street that says, don't back in. And of course, no tourist reads any signs. And so Durango, Colorado has an extra 50 of my dollars. So sometimes it's beneficial to follow the government and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's beneficial when you want to call the police because something happened, it's beneficial. Or when there's a fire, you call the fire department. Or, or because there's a, a, a sewer problems and you, you call them to come fix it, it's a wonderful thing. And you love the government then. And then as soon as it's property taxes or dog licenses or parking tickets, it's not so great. We complain all about them. But... We submit as believers to the government not because it's beneficial and then stop submitting to them when it becomes not beneficial. We submit to the government because, verse 15, it's the will of God. That's why. We don't have to like what they said or did. We do it because it's the will of God. Romans 13 says that God gave the governing authorities his authority in this cultural societal area to govern. He, he gave the government the authority, and so we are submitting to the government as we would to God. Now, obviously, there are some exceptions to this submission, but that's another sermon that I already preached on another day. Okay, so first, what did this mean to them? First, this means, okay, you guys, you submit to the Roman authorities. Because it's God's will for no other reason. No more being a zealot. Another reason to submit, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So let's stop right there for a minute because it... It mentions this topic that is a hot-button topic here in the United States, and that is slavery. We see slavery from one eyeball, from one viewpoint, and that is from the viewpoint of racism. And that is a black mark in American history. When, when one, pe- one people group subjugates another one simply because of a skin color, that's wrong. 
It's, it's evil to do that. It's evil to give preferential treatment simply because of skin color, and it's wrong to give detrimental treatment just because of skin color. That's wrong, and that's evil. And so racism is wrong. But we see slavery through only that lens. But the Bible does not. The, the, throughout the ages, for thousands of years, slavery hasn't been myopically racist. Slavery has been essentially a, an amoral issue, meaning it's not moral and righteous, and it's not immoral. It's what, a, what people do with it would be moral or immoral. Beca- and that's because slavery isn't typically, throughout the ages, a racism issue. Slavery is typically an employment issue. When a person gets in too much debt for whatever reason, sometimes it's his criminal actions, and sometimes it's just his, uh, I, I bought too many PlayStations on my credit card actions. I, I bought too many cars too new, too fast, and I couldn't make the payments kind of actions. That now this person is in debt. And slavery is just a term for committing to this one person that you're going to stay with them until the debt is paid off. And so it mentions here in verse 18 that sometimes the person that you commit to to make sure that your debt is paid off is a good person, and it works out pretty good. And then it says also that there are also some people that you commit yourself to work for that are unreasonable in this employment situation. Verse 19, for this finds favor if For the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. It's it's good for a person to do the right thing and be submissive to their employer, whether it's a great one or a very poor one. It's good for them to be submissive, even if it's a poor one. Verse 20, for what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? Meaning, you can't walk around and say, hey, look at how patient, look at how patient I am with my employer when he just fired me because I just stole a car from him. There, there's nothing that you can be proud about that. Look at how patient I am that my boss just fired me because I lazy and didn't do any work. That's okay. I'm not going to get mad at him. No, there's no glory for you in that. You deserved it. But then, verse 20, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. The natural tendency for most people is to complain about the boss, to criticize the, the person that you've committed to work for, and sometimes in our culture, to even sue them. And the method that we get back in our culture, get back at our boss, is by slacking off on our, slowing down in our work. Because after all, the boss hasn't appreciated me enough to work that hard. He's only appreciated me enough to work this hard, and we back off on our work. Or the boss doesn't pay me enough to work that hard, He only pays me enough to work this hard. Or the boss isn't even around and he doesn't even know, so who even cares if I work this hard? Or if I slack off a little bit, that means there's going to be more work for me tomorrow, and so I could have a job not only today, but I could have a job tomorrow. And so that's the way it is, has been in all cultures for all of time. (laughs) And this is just mentioning it here in first century terminology of you're working for this person that you have committed yourself to for whatever reason, and now there might be uh, a little sense of injustice where I'm not getting what I should get from all of this. Throughout the New Testament, being submissive to your employers is a common theme. But notice what it says at the end here. Verse 20, For what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? But... If what you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently do it, this finds favor with God. That word favor is an interesting word. It's the word charis, which is sometimes translated grace. That's an interesting thing. Grace means that which is beyond expected or something that's beyond what is deserved, That's grace. Something that is beyond what is expected, 
or beyond what is deserved, and so since I don't deserve it, I don't expect it, and then you get it anyway, that is called grace, or in this place it's translated favor. Now, why would a Christian person endure the hardships of their job when the boss doesn't deserve it? Why would a Christian endure difficulties at work when the boss doesn't appreciate him or pay him enough or even around to know if he's working out? Why would that employee still be working hard? Because of God's grace. That's why, because a Christian has experienced God's grace. A Christian has experienced this situation of receiving more than is expected, more than is deserved. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He came to earth. He was born on Christmas Day of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned one time. And so he goes to the cross. He's beaten. He is scourged. His his body is ripped apart. And then he is placed on the cross. And then the verse says, by his wounds we are healed. And this is a wonderful bit of grace. That, That when a person, a sinful person, you know, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Have you ever done something you shouldn't have done? Or have you thought something you shouldn't have thought? Or said something that you wish you could have grabbed and shoved it back in your mouth before it came out? I hope I'm not the only one that's done that. Well, all of that is just missing God's mark of perfect. That's what that is. It's missing God's mark of perfect. And I think we could all say, yes, we've missed the mark of perfect. Well, that's what sin means. It's just missed the mark of perfect. So the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God in a place called hell. So... Any person that ends up in hell, I mean, that's exactly what's deserved. That is the payment. That's what you get for missing the mark of righteous or perfect. But then Jesus is on the cross, and the Bible tells us that anybody that puts their faith, their belief, their trust in this Jesus, that his death applies in their life, and it, it removes their sin, that his death is the payment for, for my sin, not his, because he had none. And so any person that's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, their sins have been forgiven, not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus did. And then the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us as a seal, promise to take our soul to heaven when we die. Uh, There are rewards in heaven. Uh, We become adopted children of of God. Um, We become uh, partakers of the wonderful um, shared wealth of heaven through Jesus Christ. And all of this is just grace because we don't deserve any of it, you know? And so why would a Christian bear up under difficulty? Why would a Christian be submissive to an employer that doesn't pay them enough, that doesn't appreciate them enough, that um, isn't even around to know if they're working or not? Why would that employee still work hard and not surf the internet when no one's around? Why would they do that? Because they've received God's grace. So why would Christians be submissive? Well, first, because of God's will. Secondly, because of God's grace. And then thirdly, is the third example or the third reason why Christians or how Christians are submissive to the government and in their, in their families and to their bosses and in their marriages. Verse 21. It says... For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So Jesus didn't suffer and die because he did wrong. He did no wrong. Jesus suffered and died because it was God's will and because of God's grace. This is why he suffered and died. And now Christians, it says in verse 21, are called to a similar type of submission that Jesus did. Jesus is the, as it says here, as the example for us. We are to submit to, to the government and to our employers and within our families and our marriages and all these other areas. We are to submit, and Jesus is the example. The word example there is the, the, uh, is the word or the Greek word writing under, writing under. Like, what is that? What is it? Example is a better word. <laughs> writing under. So you think of, think of this. When you were a kid and you wanted to, to draw, but you didn't know how to draw, you'd take a picture, you'd put it down, you'd put a piece of paper on top of it, and then you would trace every little line 
Trace, 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 trace. And then you would take the paper that you traced and you'd show it to your mommy and say, look at what I drew. Well, that's, that's the word example. That's the word example, that there's, there's something underneath that we just copy, that we just trace, that you're, you're copying the, the, the master perfectly, and now that's what you have. And that is the word example. And so Jesus is our example in this type of submission, being quietly and submissively um, uh, submissive to the governing authorities, to the boss, and all these different areas, verse 22 who, referring to Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus did nothing wrong. He never sinned, and yet he was beaten. He never did anything wrong, and yet he was scourged. He, he never said anything back. Wouldn't you want to say something back? You know, oh, man, you're going to get it in the afterlife, Roman soldier. You know, like you just want to, <laughs> want to say, you got it now, but you're going to get it in the end, okay? That's what you'd want to say, but he said nothing back at all. Now, imagine if Jesus came into the world like some people come in, you know, some people treat the government just mad and angry. What if Jesus was like that? What if Jesus came into the world like some people interact with their spouse, constantly at odds with each other and constantly bickering all the time? What if, what if Jesus came into the world and, and had the outlook like most people have with their employer? What if he had that outlook? But he didn't. That's the point. Jesus is the example for us in this area of submission. He, he didn't do that. And so he is the example of silently and submissively suffering. Jesus is the example of this in his own suffering coming to earth. Verse 24, aha, the verse that finally we're trying to get to understand the context of. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now that's a wonderful thing. Jesus is not only the example for us, but he is also our substitute. The the long word for that is propitiation. He is the one that took our place. We deserve the punishment that Jesus Christ received so that any person who puts their faith and trust in him, the judgment that fell upon Christ is addressing my sin. He is our substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body for us. That is such a wonderful thing. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The context here in 1 Peter 2 is the most powerful weapon that these Jews had against the Roman government was submission. And the way that they were, the reason and way that they were going to submit was because. It's God's will because they've received God's grace and now they can give it to other people and because Jesus Christ did it and so now he's our example. Be submissive to the Roman. Be submissive in your family. Be submissive to your employer, the slave owner, even if he is an unjust slave owner. You submit him silently, quietly. You might suffer for it. Jesus is the example for all of that. And because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, it says, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. A result of Jesus' sacrifice is that he would heal, heal us from our sin, from the disease of sin. And that is such a wonderful thing that he did this. Sin is what human beings are healed of with Jesus Christ's death. So then it concludes with, by his wounds... You are healed. The Christians are healed by Jesus' wounds. But they aren't healed physically. They are healed spiritually. They are healed from the implications of this disease of sin. 
Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve eternity in hell, but by God's grace, we have eternity in heaven, that he's going to take our souls to heaven when we die. The Bible says in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were doing it wrong. We had no way to solve it, but God in his grace sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute. That is a wonderful thing, and so we are healed from our sins. Now, I'm not done yet, though. Because there is a future hope that even our bodies will be healed as an aspect of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is the way that Revelation 21 puts it, in the future. This is not today. This is in the future. But in the future it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. When our bodies are glorified in heaven, there will be no more sin, no more cry, no more die. Our bodies will be perfected, a perfect body that will live forever. And so, in a sense, there is physical healing in Jesus Christ's atonement, but that's not now. That's not today. That is a future hope that we have because we are going to heaven. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, because he paid for our sins, because that death has been applied in our life and my sins have been forgiven, I have the hope of eternity in heaven. And when I am taken up into heaven, my body will be glorified. No more sin, no more cry, no more die. Then my body will be perfected. No more cancer, no more diabetes. No more, I can't remember all the long list that that uh, faith healer had. Um, hang nails. Um, oh, dengue fever. That's a bad one. We don't really know that here in Southern California, but that's a bad one in, the, in Southeast Asia. Then our bodies will be healed for that. Now, the New Testament is clear that the apostles who had this apostolic gift of healing that began to wane over time. The apostles received the gift of healing as a way to authenticate the fact that they were an apostle because there were other guys who were cropping up that were saying, hey, I'm, I'm also an apostle. You need to follow me. And so God gave the apostles these miraculous gifts to authenticate to prove that they were apostles. But then after a while, people believed them because they were healing people. And once people then believed that they were genuine messengers from God, that gift began to fade, began to wane. In the older lives of the apostles, they were not able to do what they did earlier in their life. As a matter of fact, Paul left one of his friends, Tropimus, behind because Tropimus was sick before Paul was able to heal. But now, Paul couldn't even heal his friend. And then Paul writes to Timothy. He says, hey, you're sick in your stomach because of the untreated water. Put some wine in that water. Um, the, the alcohol will kill some of those germs in there. Paul used to be able to cure stuff like that, but not anymore. In 1 Corinthians, um, illness came upon an entire church, and none of the apostles were able to heal it, and some of those Christians even died. And so the, the, even the ability of the apostolic ability to heal waned over time because then people believed that they were genuine apostles. So the question is, is do Jesus' wounds heal us physically? And the answer is no. Now, I, you probably wish that the answer is different, and me too. I wish the answer was different. I wish that as soon as someone put their faith in Christ, all of a sudden, all of their pain would go away, all, that, that the cancer would be gone. I, I wish that that was true. I, I would love for that to be true. I think we all wish that that would be true. Now, for clarity, can God heal somebody today? Absolutely. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. That's the definition of sovereignty. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. So, yes, God, he is all-powerful. And God can heal anybody whenever he wants to. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and Isaiah 53 do not say that every Christian is going to be healed physically from their, from their ailments because of Jesus' death on the cross. The answer is it's even better than that. 
It's even better than that because a person now is saved from their sin first, the spiritual disease that takes us all out eternally, and then when we go to heaven, then our bodies are then transformed to perfect too. So the answer really is, do Jesus' wounds heal us physically? Yeah, but that's the less part of it. The better part of it is, is I'm healed from my sin, and then my body gets healed. It's even better than that because what if? What if that, that, that that's what 1 Peter 2 meant? All it meant was when Jesus died on the cross that we're healed physically. What if that's all that it meant? What if that's all Isaiah meant? That is, when Jesus died on the cross, then we would be healed physically. What, what if that's all that happened? Well, we would have really healthy bodies until we went to hell, all of us. So aren't you glad that's not what it means? Absolutely. Jesus has given us a wonderful amount of grace. And so now, to these people, now they're to be submissive to the governing authorities, to their bosses, because they have received the wonderful grace of God, because Jesus was the example, and because it's God's will. Now, if you're hearing all this today, and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, and and you want to be healed of your disease of sin... All you have to do is talk to God about it. I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? This creates a little separation between you and the person next to you. If you want to talk to God today, it's called prayer. And if you know that you need to be saved from your sin, if you want to be saved from the disease of your sin, all you need to do is talk to him. You don't need to say anything out loud. You don't need to walk forward. You don't need to raise your hand. God knows what's on your heart and he knows what's on your mind. And this is what you could say to him in the quietness of this moment. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've missed the mark of perfection. And I realize now that I need a Savior. I realize that there's one that I I need to take my place. And I believe that that's what Jesus is. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I believe that's important because Jesus is God. He lived a perfect life, born of a virgin, came from heaven, went back to heaven. And when he died, I believe he died on the cross for me, for my sin. That he was my substitute. I put my personal faith and trust in this Jesus Christ. I put my eternity into his hands. I even believe the impossible. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, proving that he can do everything that he promises that he will do. Well, God, we as a church family, we thank you for this, and we praise you for it. We thank you for your provision of your grace through your Son. We thank you that we are healed from our uh, sin, and we look forward to the time when our bodies will be healed too in heaven. We worship you because of all these things in Jesus' name.